This is Eighth Day Encouragement, a recap of the Sunday service, offering hope and faith from the Church of the Holy Trinity, Manhattan. You can find us online at holytrinity-nyc.org. Today's edition of Eighth Day Encouragement will be the last for a little while as I leave for a sabbatical for all of June and July, and so stay tuned for some time in the future. This week and the past few weeks, I've been thinking a lot about the difference between peace and passivity. In so many situations, I tend to go to the words of the 18th century Russian saint, the Seraphim of Serov, who said, the one who is at peace will save a thousand souls. I believe that sentiment, that a person who's at peace with themselves, with their God, with their experiences, will have a rippling effect of peace on all those they encounter. And so I want to be a person of peace. But at the same time, as I try to get my head and heart around the massacre of children in the school in Uvalde, Texas this week, the racially motivated shootings in Buffalo last week, and all the various horrific and soul-shaking events of our day, I also think this is no time to be passive. It's no time to check out. It's no time to ignore. And so I want to find peace and be a person of peace, but I don't want to be passive. I look to Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, for a guide. Uh, remember, remember that Jesus was put to death because his message of love and active peace was too much for the violent forces of his day. And yet God overcame that violence and every violence with the resurrection. But it is resurrection power that engages us, that fills us with purpose and direction, that enables us to continue forward with a love that refuses to give up. We see a bit of this passionate peace in the first reading today from the Acts of the Apostles. The spirit of Christ's peace within Paul seems alive and active, even when Paul is primarily acting out of annoyance. Paul and Silas and some others were in Philippi, Macedonia, one of the Roman colonies, and there they met a slave girl who was telling fortunes and making good money for the people who, who owned her, who employed her, who trafficked her, basically. All of a sudden, she starts trolling Paul and Silas, yelling things out behind them. Paul gets so annoyed, the word used in the scriptures is that he is exasperated, he's made miserable by her, and so he snaps. But rather than yell at her, rather than hurt her in some way, Paul prays. Paul prays over her. Paul prays with her. The girl loses her soothsaying powers and her handlers, her traffickers, lose their means of exploiting the young woman. And so they get the crowd on their side, never difficult to do. They all suggest that Paul and his men have broken the peace. Paul and Silas are arrested and beaten up and thrown into jail. But then in jail, God disrupts the peace again in answer to their prayers. God responds with an earthquake that shakes the jail. The doors are open, the people are freed, and even the jailer and his family are converted to God. Notice that the prayer of Paul begins with a prayer of annoyance almost. Do something about her, God. 
and then it moves to a prayer of emergency, save us. And finally, a prayer that ends with rejoicing, rejoicing among strangers turned into friends. Someone who lived out this kind of power of strong peace, of strong disruptive peace, was Martin Luther King Jr. In 1956, the University of Alabama was mandated by the court uh, that it could no longer discriminate based on race. And so it admitted a young woman named Authorine Lucy. But when Authorine showed up for school, she was met by violence of protests. The university trustees caved to the mob and asked Authorine to leave. The newspaper headline that came out afterwards reported that things were quiet in Tuscaloosa, that there were a few days of peace. That idea of a false peace, a hollow peace, was what compelled Martin Luther King Jr. to preach about this some days later. He preached, it was peace that had been purchased at the price of the capitulating to the forces of darkness. This is the type of peace that all people of goodwill hate. It's the type of peace that's obnoxious. It's the type of peace that stinks in the nostrils of Almighty God. As Martin Luther King continued to preach at the high point of his sermon, he he spelled out all those various ways that peace is false. He said, if peace means accepting second-class citizenship, I don't want it. If peace means keeping my mouth shut in the midst of injustice and evil, I don't want it. If peace means being complacently adjusted to a deadening status quo, I don't want it. If peace means a willingness to be exploited economically, dominated, politically humiliated, and segregated, I don't want peace. In today's gospel, Jesus prays for us, for a kind of peace of Christ. He's giving a prayer as an intimate expression of his love for each one of us, for all of humanity. We are his sisters and brothers. We are his family. And yet Jesus knows the world well, and he admits to his father, righteous father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We're facing a lot, a pandemic, a struggling economy, no clear leadership in any sector of our society, but we have each other. We have wise ones like some of those we celebrated the birthdays of today in our parish in their 80s and 90s. We have young ones like those who are giving their time and faith and ideas to our community. And we even have the very young, those will be baptizing next Sunday for Pentecost. And we have each other. We have the church that spreads throughout the world that shows us the difference between peace and passivity, that with the peace of Christ, we are called to to move ever forward with the promise of his never-ending love, with the promise of the one who never leaves us comfortless, but fills us with his spirit, with that Holy Spirit, so that we too can be a part of the powerful, disruptive peace of Christ. At the 11 o'clock worship service on May 29th, our choir sang, Lift Up Your Heads, Ye Gates, by the 20th century composer William Matthias.
You've been listening to Eighth Day Encouragement. The eighth day is a Monday after the seven days of the week, but the eighth day also stands as a new creation outside the pattern of the usual seven. And so the eighth day symbolizes resurrection, hope, and the possibilities for new life. I'm John Bedingfield, the priest and rector at the Church of the Holy Trinity, Manhattan. I hope you'll come and visit us in person one day, but you can also worship with us through Facebook Live, follow us on YouTube, and learn more at holytrinity-nyc.org. God bless you this week and always.